When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to the Silver Fortune Podcast. Once again, I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in. Give you guys a quick reminder. Uh, there's a link down below in the description to my uh, my first fiction book, Zero Sum, book one of the Civil Strife series. I am uh, well, well well past halfway done with, with the first uh, draft of, of book two, and I'm really excited to, to release that um, early 2022. So um, be sure to check that out. And, and, and I always forget to mention this, but, but if you aren't an audiobook listener, Listener, usually, like if you don't have Audible, uh, an account with them already, um, there is an offer down below. Uh, you'll see it in the description to to get your first audiobook free through Audible if if you haven't signed up before. So be sure to take advantage of that link down there. Um, that is, of course, a commission link. So I uh, they, they have bounty programs basically for that. But just. Be aware of that as well. Um, getting into the main topics of today's videos, of course, I'm going to start off here talking about silver, uh, which which we'll jump into here in a second. We'll also be talking about uh, the Federal Reserve and some of their well, their minutes and, and kind of where they're headed. Um, I, I want to give some thoughts on it. You, you know, I always have lots of thoughts on the Federal Reserve. Um, and, and then finally, I want to wrap up with with a little bit more on the interview that I, that I posted this past Saturday with Steve San Angelo from the SRS Rocco report. Uh, check out my channel if you want to listen to that interview. I think it's a, it's a really great listen. Um, I said at the beginning of that interview that my interviews with him tend to have some of the, the best watch times, um, across the channel, given the, the length of it. It was over an hour long. That was a feature length interview discussion, really. I think he did the most of the sub, sub, substantive talking, but, but a discussion and, uh, it was, um, well received, I think. And so be sure to check that out. Steve has a ton of really interesting things to say that, that I think I'd like to get into here today, uh, and, and give some of my own thoughts on, uh, because I'm allowed to do that. And this is my own podcast. So I want to start off here though, talking about silver. So of course, each year, the world silver survey, uh, the silver Institute puts out the world silver survey, usually in, in like May, in the springtime of each year, uh, six months later, roughly six or seven months out later, they put out their, their interim report for the, for the coming year. Uh, and of course they, they, they include a ton of data, a ton of really important data on, on supply and demand factors in the silver market. And, and I've made a, a plethora of my podcasts about them in the past, breaking it down piece by piece. And I want to take some time to just quickly talk about this interim silver market, um, review, uh, and, and they kind of have their estimates for 2021. So I want to start off with a headline number. Um, they are anticipating, they're estimating that in 2021, um, silver supply, uh, will increase by about 50 million ounces compared to 2020. No surprise there. Um, given the fact that, uh, silver supply, uh, uh, really dropped quite a bit in 2020 because of COVID related factors, mine shutdowns and whatnot, some other things as well. This brings it about in line, actually, 1 million ounces underneath the 2019 total. So kind of back to you know pre-COVID levels in terms of supply coming on the market. Um, if you're looking at mining production, it's uh, it's well below 
2019, and, and they're anticipating a lot of this increase, or you know, uh, uh, the the reason that it's um back to to those levels is mostly an increase in scrap supply, which also makes sense given the fact that silver is uh, worth a lot more in 2021 compared to past years, and so of course you know scrapping is going to increase. Um, and then on the demand side, demand has made a strong rebound. By the way, looking back to the supply side for mining numbers, um, that's the, the uh, you know, if we throw out 2020, that's the lowest mining supply has been since 2012 in, in terms of overall supply coming to the market, um, 1,022 million ounces. Um, like I said, similar to 2019, pretty similar to 2018, lower than 17, 16, 15, 14, 13. Again, all the way back to 2012 to find a year which which had less supply, uh, with the exception of those other numbers, 2020, which we can somewhat throw out, and then 2019 and 18, which were um, 1 million above and, and 3 million ounces below, respectively. So, uh, again, the big takeaway there is that supply has has not come up to where it was in 14 15 16 17 and a lot of that i think relates to the fact that 13 14 15 16 uh you know those were after that big bull market in silver and and i think we have to factor that in to some extent when you have a big bull market you oftentimes have oversupply afterwards because of all the investments all the mining that comes online in in subsequent years Switching uh, to, to demand side, um, they are estimating that uh, demand for silver will increase to 1,029 million ounces um, this year in 2021. Huge increase over last year, which was less than 900 million ounces. So, so we're talking uh, an increase of uh, um, 137 million ounces. And, and again, no surprise there. Demand, of course, was down in 2020. Um, because of COVID, especially on the industrial side of things. However, again, if we're looking at demand, this is the highest demand. If we're going with their estimate, the highest demand has been since uh, 2015, right? Um, for four years in a row there, it was underneath a billion ounces. And, and this year, their estimate will be above. Now, the big, the big caveat, which I'm going to get into here in a second, that does take into account physical investment, coins, bars, medallions, things like that, takes into account jewelry, which for some cultures has an investment value um, in India, among others. It does not take into account exchange-traded product inventory. I'm, of course, talking about the likes of SLV uh, and, and other exchange-traded products. I, we'll talk more about that here in a second. But I think that's, um, that's an error on their part. But, but they do include that later on. Okay. But anyways, the takeaway here is that in 2021, if we're looking at their, you know, demand figure, that's a huge increase, a huge increase in, in the industrial side. Um, the highest it has been, well, ever, at least, you know, their chart goes back to 2011. So maybe the highest it's ever been, um, in terms of, uh, in terms of physical investment, um, 263 million ounces. Coins, bars, and whatnot. It's the highest it's been since 2015, which was a huge year, 2013, 14, 15, 2012, 2011. Those were all really strong years for, for investment demand. Um, so, I mean, that's really, that's really positive. Um, the silverware, the jewelry side, um, a pretty strong increase in the jewelry side from last year, but still below 2019, 2018, 2017. Okay. Um, same thing goes for jewelry, but on the invisible investment side, if you're just looking at coins and bars, huge increase, really strong numbers that they're, they're estimating there. 
Uh, and so, you know, the big headline number there is 1,029 million ounces of demand estimated. So on the supply side, 1,022, demand side, 1,029. This is a 7 million ounce deficit. It's a small deficit in the whole scheme of things. Um, to, to put that in context, again, if we're ignoring exchange traded products, 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, those were all, um, those were all surpluses. Uh, we'd have to go back to 2015 to find a, 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 a small, albeit small, uh, 2 million ounce deficit. And so that's, that's big. I mean, obviously that's a big part of, of, of building that, that upwards pressure on the price is, is you want to have a deficit. And, and, you know, in many ways, like I said before, you know, silver, like a lot of commodity markets for many years there, you know, it has suffered from lower investments, CapEx investments and whatnot because of the lower prices. But for many years there, after the last big run up, which, you know, started all the way through the 2000s and in 2011, basically 2011, 2012, uh, peaked in 2011. Um, you're going to have kind of some of that overhang, that overproduction for a while. And, and that, I think, plays into that, especially as um, investment demand kind of cooled off after 2016 for a while there. But it's certainly back here in 2021. Mm-hmm. And, and even though, you know, the beginning of 2021 was a huge time for the silver squeeze movement, we're still seeing strong numbers later into the year from, you know, silver eagle sales and whatnot. I don't have them. I probably haven't looked at them for the last month, but still pretty strong, right? Now, the, the big caveat that I said earlier was, of course, the exchange traded product. You know, to ignore that or not to ignore that. Now, I think it's a key. It's a key number. Now, this is going to differ from person to person. If if you're doubtful that the SLV is even holding a small percentage of what they say they're holding, then this may not apply to you. Although PSLV, Sprout Physical Silver Trust, is pretty sizable these days and and can't be ignored and um, you know, some of those people tend to, to have more faith that that silver is actually there. There's a whole host of other smaller funds out there. Those are kind of the two ones that get the most attention, of course. But 150 million ounces increase in terms of the ETP inventory. That's what they're estimating this for this year. That's on top of 331 million ounces a year prior, 83 the year before that, right? And then you have a, a decrease in 2018. But, but the big picture there is that if you look when you include the exchange traded product build, on the supply and demand side, you know, you have a 157 ounce, 157 million ounce deficit this year estimated, 251 million ounce deficit estimated last year, 53 the year before that, you know, and then you go further back and you get some surpluses all the way back to 2013, 12, 11, you get some, some, some deficits. Um, but that's, that's a pretty significant deficit for, for three years in a row, you know, per their numbers here, um, we're looking at, um, Upwards of 450 million ounces deficit over the last three years if you're including the exchange traded product, which I think you have to. I think you have to. If you're going to include coins and bar demand, but not the coin and bar demand by these exchange traded products, which essentially are, are taking them off of the market. Um, if you're going to, and yes, they could go back in the market, but so can, you know, scrap silver, whether that's from monetary you know, coins or bars, whatever, getting melted down as scrap, or it's, uh, um, you know, from electronics or scrapping of electronics or other things. If I mean, if you're going to count that, I mean, I think you got to count exchange traded products. And, I, you know, I'm sure there's there's a reason that they don't. And it, it, it does fluctuate. And it doesn't, it's not 
taken off the market, maybe in the same way that a lot of, a lot of investment, um, their, their other category of investment demand is taken off the market, uh, thrown into a vault, thrown into a safe, um, worn around somebody's neck, etc. Right. Uh, but but 400 million ounces, 450 million ounces over three years, that's a huge amount, right? Now, the other caveat here is that this is just an estimate. I am going to go out on a limb here, and this isn't me just say, being, you know, always overly positive, but I would anticipate that, you know, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see these numbers find a, we're going to see a pretty significant discrepancy, I think, between these numbers and maybe the final numbers. It's hard to say. I could be wrong. I wouldn't be surprised to see a decent discrepancy in one direction or another. Um, however, you know, on some fronts, such as exchange-traded product build, investment demand, I mean, I think that stuff is is going to be pretty similar, um, all things considered, okay. to, to what they have here. And um, yeah, I'd expect a deficit this year. I mean, I think that's a big number, 450 million ounce deficit when you're taking account of exchange-traded products. Hey, I mean, that stuff is taken off the market. It, it's on the market, but it's it's held in a vault um, at a price. Can that be redeemed? Yeah. So so can the silver in, um, you know, the device you're using to listen to this. You know, that can be redeemed. That can be scrapped at a price. The coins and bars that, that stackers buy, that can be redeemed at a price and brought back onto the market. You know, I talked last week, I think last week, about the silver market and some of the the similarities, you know, the blueprint that we've had for the silver market nowadays in the uranium market, and that hey, you know, um, we're seeing how it's done, sort of as the, the Sprott Physical Trust Uranium Trust has um sequestered a, a north of a forty million total ounce, a forty million total pounds of uranium off the market. Um, some of that they inherited, some of that they have um they have purchased. It's had a huge impact on the uranium market. One of the key differences in the silver market is that there's a lot more slack. Uranium, there's lots of physical supply laying around, but a lot of it is is owned by utilities, and and they they may sell it, but they don't lower their stockpile significantly. Generally speaking, because they they need it, they need a steady supply of uranium. Um, in the silver market, there's lots of silver out there. I'm not talking like a hundred billion ounces of of investment grade silver. It's it's likely much much less than that. <laughs> you know, ten billion at most would be my estimate. Probably much less than that. Um, but but even ten billion, um, that's uh you know what what two hundred and fifty billion dollars total uh, at current prices. A little less than that. Um, I, my guess is probably you know maybe like four to to seven. You know. I've done some videos in the past that maybe go more into depth on that. That's still not a lot of silver in terms of monetary, in terms of dollars, um, some market cap compared to gold. But there's a lot laying around, whether it's exchange-traded products or vaulting services or stackers like you and I. And I mean, it's out there, right? It's It's like any physical market, like any market, right? But especially physical commodities and, and, and metals and, and whatnot, that is, you know, it's going to come onto the market at the right price. I mean, ask yourself this. Are you going to sell at $50 an ounce for silver? Your answer might be no, but I can guarantee you that there's going to be a portion of the people watching this that are going to say yes. Are they right or wrong? That's not the point of this conversation. I'm just saying that that is going to come onto the market at the right price. This isn't me saying that silver is limited and how far it can run. In fact, I think the more momentum there is, the less likely you're going to have those people kind of dipping out along the way. 
Um, what I'm saying here is that, um, you know, to exclude the exchange traded products on any basis like that, I'm not saying that that's the basis, but that's, I think, why some people count, discount it, is, is kind of silly because I think that's the case for most silver out there. There's a lot of silver sitting in landfills that I believe will be mined one day. Um, there's firms that have already looked into that, in fact. I don't know if they've ever actually started. But but at the right price, yeah, they're going to do that. They're going to go through those landfills, industrial waste, or whatever it might be that, that they're going to find silver. So um, moving on, you know, another thing I want to talk about here was the Federal Reserve and some of their recent... Um, this was actually their minutes that came out, uh, uh, I think, earlier today. This is Wednesday, by the way, that I'm recording this today. Earlier today, uh, and they're talking about... Uh, well, specifically, these are their minutes from their meeting. Um, the meeting in which they started their uh, taper, tapering of their asset purchases of their QE program. And I want to kind of go through some of these, and I think these are really key to understand. Uh, the big takeaway here, the Fed is not filled with a bunch of morons. Like, we might consider them that. I don't think so. I think they're intelligent people for the most part. They may suffer pretty significantly some of them from from arrogance many of us that may be true for it but but arrogance they might suffer from um just a real a real lack of of personability they might suffer from a lack of of open-mindedness um they can be dogmatic they can, there's a lot of problems, right? But they're not unintelligent, I think, for the most part. I don't. I think it's hard to make it there if that was the case. Um, but one of the big takeaways from these minutes is that even despite that, they sometimes it feels like they just don't know what's going on. Like they they talk as though they know what's going on and they can tell the future, right? Uh, look at Jerome Powell and his transitory. Look at um, attempted tapers in the past that have failed. Look at uh, a whole bunch of things. And, and a lot of times Fed, I mean, they just kind of chalk it up to, you know, unforeseen risks, unforeseen what, things they didn't anticipate. And, and that's the big gist of this is that there's a lot that they just do not anticipate. With that being said, I don't want to give them an out. Um, I think that their, their ideology when it comes to economics is oftentimes flawed. Um, uh, not to say that, that I am the arbiter of truth on economics. I'm not. But I'm saying that, that a lot of the ways they approach things is flawed and, and sort of predictable. And we, we saw that article last week. Um, I think it was like the White House, was it Jen Psaki or whatever her name is? Psaki, that was, was um, I don't know if I've ever said her name out loud, so I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. But, but, uh, she was talking about, you know, no econom economists had, had predicted this level of inflation. And of course, that's not true. There, there's been plenty of economists and others that have predicted rising inflation, have for a while. Um, many of them wrong along the way, including myself, now that I'm like, consider myself an economist. But, but, uh, but there's many people that had predicted that along the way. And, and I think the Fed here has to understand that, that, uh, what we have to understand about the Fed is that they oftentimes come at this from a flawed perspective, from a flawed analysis. And rather than changing their point of view, their framework for economics based on reality, 
um, they, they tend to, to sort of bend reality according to their own framework, if that makes sense. We could have seen this coming, could have seen this coming, but I'm sure it's because of reasons A, B, and C, and certainly not uh, D, E, and F, right? Uh, which maybe a different economic camp would, would suggest. Anyways, quoting here, the minutes from the Federal Reserve, this is from Bloomberg, um, grab this off of, of Zero Hedge's website. The staff continued to judge that the risks of the baseline projection for economic activity were skewed to the downside. We've talked about that in the past, that you know, with, with the leverage that we have in today's market, in today's economy, I'm talking debt, um, it's going to be hard to, to get upside in terms of, of economic growth. Uh, risks around the inflation projection were skewed to the upside. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. That a lot of people have predicted this inflation. You you add the amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus you have in the last year and a half, and yeah, you're going to get inflation. Some of them talked about possibly increasing the rate of the taper um, because of these inflation concerns. Essentially, what they're referring to here, a lot of this, is a stagflation. We were worried about growth being slower than we thought and inflation higher than we thought. That's stagflation, essentially. And they're talking about tapering. Um, now, you know, the risk with that is, well, pretty significant for the market, the broader market, and, and in turn, I think the economy. The market is not the economy, but the economy certainly is going to take a turn for the worse should a sustained bear market or drop in the markets, a stock market mostly, but real estate and other markets too, occur. It, and it's not just because of the wealth effect either. I think a lot of it is, is because of, of expectations too or because of perceptions. Um, but yeah, you, you, you end up with something like that. And so um, you know, if they're actually talking about increasing the rate of the taper because they're worried about inflation, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. What You increase the rate of taper, you risk crashing the markets. You hike rates to stop inflation, you crash the markets. Part of me wonders... Um, if if they're going to do that anyways, be, because it's going to make things a heck of a lot easier for them. Uh, they can just say, see, we can't taper. See, we didn't see that coming. That was unforeseen. We're going to, you know, stop the taper, you know, increase our purchasing schedule, uh, cut rates more, more fiscal policy, more helicopter money, you name it, right? I, I actually wouldn't be at all be surprised by that happening. But in the meantime... I wouldn't be surprised either to see the markets follow the narrative for some time that, hey, we, we're going to need to increase the rate of this taper because of inflation or whatever else. Um, uh, let's see here. What else did they talk about? Um, talked about labor force participation being structurally lower than in the past. Why is that the case? Well, I think inflation has to do with part of that. I think there's a lot of other disruptions that have happened in the last year. I think there's been a lot of people that have just kind of looked at their job because they were laid off for a while or whatever and, and just said, you know, I don't I don't want to live that life anymore, right? I, I think that can look at a lot of different ways, but but I don't want to live that sort of rat race anymore. I don't want to do that full-time thing. I don't want to um, because I have other options and I know I have options now. Inflation, I think, plays a role in that too when everyone sees their cost of living increase at a rate that far exceeds their their the increases to their wages, they're going to say, hang on a second, the incentive for me to stay here is much less than it has been in the past because, you know, it's already hard to make, make ends meet. Maybe I can, you know, make it some other way. Um, let's see here. 
in their comments on inflation expectations, a number of participants discussed the risk that in light of recent elevated levels of inflation, the public's longer-term expectation of inflation might increase to a level above that consistent with the committee's longer-run inflation objective. Such a development could make it harder for the committee to achieve 2% inflation over the longer run. Um, <laughs> uh, continuing, a couple of participants pointed to increases in survey and market-based indicators of expected inflation, including the notable rise in the five-year tips-based measure of inflation compensation as possible signs that inflation expectations were becoming less well-anchored. This is the big ship of, of Federal Reserve monetary policy slowly turning here. You remember back in the day, it was 2%. That was our mandate, 2%. Well, it was under 2% for so long, so if it runs over 2% for a while, as long as it evens out. And now they're kind of slowly, slowly turning the ship once again. That like, hey, the public longer-term expectations are, are increasing, and, and hey, maybe because of that, Inflation will be longer than or higher than two percent longer than we anticipate, and you know maybe we should consider you know the next step would be hey maybe we should consider changing our our objective to ma match you know changes in public sentiment. It's ridiculous, right? Public sentiment is changing because inflation is increasing. It's it's incredibly high right now, and public sentiment about inflation uh, is is skewing towards you know higher inflation for longer than we expected because that's what everyone sort of expects not that the public is always right on this but but come on i mean i i think the public is 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 right in this sense <laughs> we're, we're seeing higher inflation this is inflation that we were told wouldn't happen or would have stopped by now uh later on it, it uh here quote participants generally saw the current elevated level of inflation is largely reflecting factors that were likely to be transitory participants i assume referring to, to the FOMC, but judge that inflation pressures could take longer to subside than they previously assessed. And this goes back to what I said at the beginning. The Fed doesn't know what they're doing because their framework is is off. It's it's flawed. And if you have a flawed framework, then yes, you're going to get surprised more often than not. Not that you won't be surprised if you have a perfect framework, but it's going to be a lot easier. And so they expected this to be much more transitory. For this, if that's even possible, uh, but but for this to, to be short or lived and and not as severe, well, they were wrong on that, and now they're saying, well, we still don't think it will last that long, even though we were wrong before. We still don't think it will last that long, and these are the people that are in charge of our monetary policy. Uh, it's it's um it's not a science that people maybe assume it is. Uh, that's been one of my big problems with monetary policy for a while now is that monetary policy economics, it's not a science. It's, if anything, a social science and, and it's not settled and, and it's treated as though it is, right? It, it's treated as though there's kind of only one way to do this, that there's little variations of that. But our Overton window right now for Fed policy as skewed significantly to the to the dovish direction and and it completely fails to take into account a ton of other viewpoints right and and that can be the case sometimes for our political overton window which has certainly skewed as well but but our i think our overton window in terms of politics is much much wider than the fed and there's a huge amount of disagreement left right libertarian socialist green party and 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 a thousand other thoughts on it 
And and yeah, we we don't always respect the other side, but hopefully we can at least say like, hey, that's a <laughs> there must be at least some um some real ideas out there on the left or on the right or whatever. Because hey, there's tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people that buy into those, you know, views. When it comes to economics and Fed monetary policy, it's as though it's like um there's not that. Even even the Supreme Court. Even the Supreme Court, which is supposed to be non political, but has become obviously much more political in recent years and decades. Although it has been very political well before that too. But but even that we can say, well, this justice is more on the conservative side, more on the liberal side because of these rulings, because of these this framework for their, you know, constitution how they view the constitution and whatnot. But with the Fed, it's just <laughs> You don't see that discussion. And the Overton window is so narrow and so skewed to the dovish side nowadays. And it's a problem. So I've been talking for long enough. I wanted to talk a little bit about that interview that I did with Steve St. Angelo earlier this week. But I'm going to leave that for each of you to um, um, check out for yourself and, and leave your thoughts down in the comment section. Maybe I'll loop back to that at some point in the future. Talking about the energy cliff and, and, and some of the other things there. Uh, as always, though, I'd like to thank each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart for, for tuning into today's podcast, and God bless. And actually, real quick before I go, um, just want to give you a quick reminder. If, if you've been enthralled by the last 28-some minutes of me talking and you forgot what I started off with, be sure to check out my book, Zero Sum. There's a link down below in the description. Very much appreciate it if you could check that out. Uh, it's, it's available in ebook, um, audiobook, paperback, hardcover. And of course, if you haven't used Audible before, there's a link down below there as well for a free trial. You get my book for free. So be sure to check that out. Once again, thank you, thank you, thank you, and God bless.